Second reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 9. I will read verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us this morning by your eternal word, that you would illuminate our minds in the same way that you inspired Apostle Paul. And we pray that by gathering around your word and gathering around your table This morning, that our identity in you might be more firmly imprinted upon us, that we might more truly reflect your nature and your heart. And we pray that after we go out from this place this day, that we might go out in your power and in your spirit, having met you here this day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Jay, can you just leave that verse up on the screen? Is that possible? He's working on it. So can we talk about swearing and cursing this morning? Some people like to swear dramatic and fearsome oaths to draw attention to the seriousness or the truthfulness of what they're saying. I swear to God. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's grave, some people will say. Back in my day, kids used to say, cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in your eye. When I was in graduate school, I had a professor from the big thicket of East Texas who used to exclaim, well, part my hair with a pork chop. I have no idea what that means. I don't know. I don't know if anyone takes these kinds of oaths seriously these days. But they used to. In Old Testament times, oaths were so important that one of the Ten Commandments is dedicated to protecting the potency of oaths. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, is how the Third Commandment reads in the King James Version. That's a commandment about oaths, that when you invoke God's name in making an oath that you better be really serious, that you better be telling the truth, that you better not invoke the name, the divine name, in vain. The function of an oath is to signal that we're really serious about what we're saying and that we're telling the truth. Now, for Christians, oaths are not an option. For Christians, oaths are not permitted. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns against all swearing and oaths and all strong language. He says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus' prohibition against words stronger than yes and no makes it kind of hard or frustrating for Christians who want to put a really big, fat exclamation point on what they're saying. And you can feel Paul's frustration, his pushing the language to an extreme. In the opening lines of Romans chapter 9, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul has a really important point to make. And what he's about to say seems so so in, unbelievable, so inconceivable that he feels the need to insist that He's telling the truth three times. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. The only member of the Holy Trinity that he does not invoke is God the Father. Paul is serious. And he understands that what he's about to say might be hard to believe. But nevertheless, it is true. And here's what it is that he has to say. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. In the opening verse of chapter 9, Paul almost swears an oath. Three times he steps really close to the line invoking Christ, invoking the Holy Spirit, insisting that he's really telling the truth, even if what he is going to say seems unbelievable. He's got our attention, our ears are peeled. And then Paul says what it is that he needs to say, and what he says is kind of, sort of, right next door to almost a curse. First, Paul almost swears an oath. And then Paul almost pronounces a curse on himself. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. He's almost saying, but not exactly, he's almost saying, let me be damned that my brothers might be saved. He doesn't say that because he knows that it's impossible For the elect of God can never be cut off from God. But he is saying that he wishes he could be damned so that his brothers might be saved. Swearing and cursing. In the epistle to the Romans. Sort of. Some of you parents might be willing to lose your lives to save the life of a child. That's how Paul feels about his kinsmen, his fellow Israelites, who are not yet followers of Christ. It grieves him deeply that these people he loves are cut off from Christ. Some of you here today have people in your family who are not saved. They've heard the gospel. They know about Jesus 
They know what you believe. But somehow the light has not yet gone on for them. Or maybe they once believed but have lost the faith that they used to hold. Now I know that this sounds like a strange thing for a pastor to say, but I hope you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. I spend so much of my time with you praying for relief from sorrow. For an end to anguish. But in this case, if you have unsaved people in your family, I pray that you will have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart for them. Heaven and hell, that's what's at stake. The greatest good versus the greatest evil. If you understand the gospel, if you understand what Jesus taught, if you understand why Jesus had to go to a cross, then you know that what's at stake is infinite bliss on one hand. And infinite terror on the other. And that's not me being dramatic. That's not preacherly hyperbole. That's the sober assessment of Jesus himself. Here's what he says in Matthew 25. He says, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's what Jesus says to his followers. And then he says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what Jesus says to those who've gone their own way. How can we rest at night if we know that there are people, perhaps people that we love, who are dancing on the precipice? Some of you lose sleep when you hear sirens wail. Some of you say a quick prayer when a fire engine races past. And yet, the stakes are infinitely higher in this business of the gospel. Because we're not talking about just life and death. We're talking about eternal life and eternal death. Paul knows this. Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart over his kinsmen who were not yet in Christ Paul, of course, is probably single-handedly responsible for more people finding their way to heaven than any other human who's ever lived, even more than someone like Billy Graham, because Paul planted churches. And those churches became a rising tide of the gospel pouring over Europe. You and I are Christians today because of Paul's work, his restless, relentless work. To spread the gospel. You'll recall that Paul begins his letter to the Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul knows that the gospel is for everyone. Paul knows that everyone, Jew or non-Jew, it doesn't matter, should hear the gospel. And that's because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone and to anyone who will believe. And so anyone who loves people, anyone who wants the best for others will share the gospel in the hope that they will hear and believe. The gospel is also glorious because it brings honor to God. The gospel simultaneously upholds the unchangeable 
majesty of God's law and the infinite mercy of God's heart. And so the proclamation of the gospel is both a humanitarian exercise, an attempt to make the lives and the futures of people better, but it's also an act of worship, bringing acclaim and glory to the creator of the universe. This church, Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, this church exists to share the gospel. And I pray that every member of this church is losing sleep over the eternal destiny of people you know. Next month, the congregation will elect new elders to serve on our session. The nominating committee is already busy. Maybe someone from that committee has spoken to you. They've been meeting together. They've been praying together. Their job is to discern through the power of the Holy Spirit, who God is calling to be the shepherds of this congregation. And I pray that every person nominated and elected to be an elder of this church, I pray that every one of them has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in their heart. Sorrow and anguish over people who live all around us and do not yet know Christ as Savior. I pray that prayer because I know that if our elders have sorrow and anguish for the lost, that they will not rest in their labors as they work to bring lost sheep home. And what a glory that will be. What a glory it will be to see lost sheep found and brought home. Prodigals welcomed back into the fold of the church. What a glory it will be to Almighty God. To see his name lifted up in this congregation. And he does deserve all glory and honor and praise. Amen. This week we have turned a crucial corner in our series of sermons through the book of Romans. In chapters 9 through chapter 11, Paul takes on a very serious and complicated question about the relationship between Israel and the church, between Jews and Christians. And if ever there was a man who was qualified to answer these questions, it certainly is the Apostle Paul. And that's because Paul was both a super Jew and a super Christian. All of the writers of the New Testament, of course, were Jews, but Paul has a special place even in that rarefied company. He was the most theologically trained of all the New Testament writers. And he was the Jew who brought the gospel of the Jewish Messiah to the Gentiles. Paul is very specially placed to discuss Christian-Jewish relations. And that discussion begins in the verses that we read today from Romans chapter 9. In the weeks ahead, or maybe the months ahead, as we unravel these chapters, these chapters that a number of commentators identify as being the heart of this letter, uh, we will begin to look into these complicated questions. This morning, I want only to raise a few preliminary observations and then to wrap up with a single uh, big fat affirmation, and I won't use any oaths. And then we'll have the Lord's Supper together. So let me begin by talking about 
Paul, the super Jew, the super Christian, and about what he has to say about his fellow Jews in light of the gospel. So first, some history. Before Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a member of a devout and very strict conservative sect within Judaism. About his Jewish credentials, Paul brags in Philippians 3.5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. He was as Jewish as you could come. And on top of that, according to Acts 22, verse 3, Paul was a student of the Jewish scholar Gamaliel, who himself was the grandson of one of the greatest of all of the Jewish teachers, Hillel the Elder. In other words, Paul was a super Jew because of his genealogical lineage, and also because of his impeccable theological training. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of which were written after Paul begins to write his letters, give us the historical picture of Jesus. We see the events of his birth and his life and his ministry and his death laid out for us in a chronological fashion. But there are many important mysteries that the gospel presents but doesn't explain. Or at least they don't explain how those historical facts are connected with the spiritual truths of our lives. For example, the gospel reveals that Jesus was conceived supernaturally, that he was born of a virgin. Interesting facts, but what does that mean for our lives today here in Huntington Valley? The Gospels give lots of details about the trial, suffering, and death of Jesus, but they don't tell us why those facts make any difference for us living 2,000 years later. It is Paul's writings which give us the theological apparatus we need to understand those stories in the Gospel. And the way Paul does that is by connecting the stories of Jesus with the teaching of the Old Testament, giving us a larger, fuller, more complex understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth is. Paul had a deep knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, and through this he was able to explain where Jesus fit into God's overall plan for humanity, not just for the Jews, but for all of humanity, reaching back to the very beginning and extending to the end of time. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus, the beginning and the end. Paul is the one who explains to us how Jesus of Nazareth fits into the salvation history. How Jesus, the Son of God forms the crucial link in the unfolding story of God's redemption of God's people. Paul, the super Jew. Paul, the super Christian. So let me talk a little bit about the congregation that Paul is writing to. Paul, of course, did not establish the church in Rome. At the time he writes this letter, he's never been to Rome. Before the gospel comes to Rome, there were plenty of Jews living in that city. Apparently, most of them had gotten there as slaves. 
By the time Paul is writing his letter, most of the Jews are actually free in the city. Under some emperors, Jewish religious practice was tolerated, but other, other, uh, under other emperors, there was religious persecution. Paul writes his letter to the Romans at a time when the distinction between Christians and Jews wasn't very clear to the pagans. In fact, not long before Paul writes this letter to the Romans, somewhere between 41 and 54 AD, the emperor Claudius expels the Jews from the city of Rome, and in doing so, he throws out both Christian and Jew, because he can't tell the difference. The first century Roman historian Suetonius has this brief statement about the expulsion. He writes, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, apparently Christ, he, the emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Priscilla and Aquila, two names that I'm sure you've heard, husband and wife, missionary team, who worked with Paul. They uh, come up in the New Testament about six times. Priscilla and Aquila were part of this church in Rome, and they were among the people who were expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius. Hippolytus of Rome, in writing in the third century, lists Aquila as one of the 70 disciples sent out by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. So perhaps... Aquila and his wife Priscilla were the people who first brought the gospel to Rome. We don't know for sure, but it's possible. What we do know is that by the time Paul is writing to the church in Rome, it consists of both Jews and Gentiles. When the Jews were expelled by Claudius, the Gentile Christians apparently stayed behind And then when Claudius was succeeded by Nero, the Jews returned. And it's to this church, composed of Gentile Christians, former pagans, and Jewish Christians who've been away but who've returned, that Paul is writing. And so in the weeks ahead, we're going to be talking about the relationship between these two communities within the Church of Jesus Christ, between uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians, and also the relationship between the church as a whole and the nation of Israel as a whole. But this morning I want to mention briefly uh, the problem of anti-Semitism. Throughout the centuries, individual Christians and the Christian church as an institution has been guilty of many ugly and murderous episodes of anti-Semitism. We will see in the weeks ahead as we begin to plow our way through chapters 9, 10, and 11 that these hateful attitudes and these hateful actions are sinful and are entirely at odds with what Paul teaches in Romans 9 through 11. This morning I want to lift up part of our reading from the first five verses of chapter 9. Can you put that back up on the screen for me there if you would? Paul writes of his brothers, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is proud to be a Jew. 
And he gives us a whole litany of the glories of his people. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and even according to the flesh, Jesus the Christ. They are, after all, God's chosen people. The glory of the Jews is an objective fact. And we as Christians are to recognize and to honor that fact. That God has set apart a special people for himself. And that he has gifted them with certain glories. In Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 and 7, we learn that it isn't any particular virtue on the part of the Israelites that causes them to be chosen by God. We read, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in numbers than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. The election of the descendants of Abraham as God's chosen people is an act of sovereign grace on God's part. It's a free gift. Not a payment for services rendered. The descendants of Abraham were not elected by God's, uh, by God as, uh, as his chosen people because they were better than other people. But God, for reasons known only to himself, did choose them and set them apart for himself in a special way. And we, as followers of Christ, respect and honor the sovereign choice that God made. In the weeks ahead, we will see how the wonderful gift given to the children of Israel becomes, through them, a gift for the whole world. So that even, so that this gift even now can embrace us, people who are not descendants of Abraham. Now let me close by drawing your attention to the final sentence of our reading this morning. If I could reappear right back up there. Paul writes, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now this little sentence packs a punch. To the Jews belong the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Paul knows that the Messiah was revealed in his time. And that he was Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth. This Christ, this anointed one, this Messiah, is the fulfillment of a whole raft of promises that God made to the children of Israel. Jesus is the answer to the prayers of the children of Israel. But more than that, this Jesus is also God over all. Now that's a breathtaking statement. There is no clearer statement in Scripture of the divinity of Jesus than that little phrase, the Christ who is God over all. All of the prophets pointed toward Christ. And when Christ appeared, he was revealed to be far more than the prophets had hoped for or imagined. The Christ was not only a liberator and a lawgiver, Christ was also Emmanuel, God with us, God for us. Christ was the Lamb of God who offered up his own life as a sacrifice once and for all time, never to be repeated, for the sins of his people. This morning we gather around the Lord's table 
to remember that sacrifice, to remember the self-sacrifice of Christ for us, for those of us who are Jews and for those of us who are Gentiles, Christ died so that whoever believes in him will not perish but will inherit eternal life to the glory of God whose name is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray.